Howard Green, who I'm about to introduce, had the pleasure of studying Hunter, his methods, his ways, his accomplishments and achievements, and publishing sort of the de facto book on Hunter Harrison, titled Railroader, the Unfiltered Genius and Controversy of Four-Time CEO Hunter Harrison. Please, everyone, give us a round of applause for Howard Green. Thanks, JT. Honored to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank so, you, everybody. Very exciting topic. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, when you talked about the Staggers Act, for instance, uh, 1980, uh, which deregulated the rail industry after all those years, since 1887, uh, when Grover Cleveland was president, up to when Jimmy Carter passed or uh, pushed through the Staggers Act, that really opened up the opportunity for a guy like Hunter Harrison. I mean, that when you think about it, the timing was perfect. He started in the rails at the end of 1963, post-war, just when jobs were starting to open up. Not because he had any particular abiding interest in railroads, funnily enough. He wasn't what um, people in the business derisively uh, call people who are railroad buffs, foamers. He was not anything like that at all. He went to work for the railroad because it paid $2 an hour instead of 50 cents an hour at the bakery. He went for the money. But then he quickly discovered working from the ground up, pouring oil into the wheels, he started right at the bottom, uh, that he had an aptitude for the business. He could see it in multiple dimensions. He would, if you remember the film Rain Man, he was almost kind of like a Rain Man type figure. Uh, remember Dustin Hoffman played mm -hmm. him years ago? Tom Cruise, I think, was in that yeah, too. He knew all the numbers. Anyway, uh, he, he, he could just see how those networks operated in multi-dimensions and ultimately knew how to run them more efficiently uh, than anybody else, which really became his hallmark, precision schedule railroading, which a number of people had been involved in developing, but he was the master articulator of it, and it became his calling card worldwide, ultimately allowing him to turn around the fortunes of four class one railroads. I mean, who's been CEO four times and done four turnarounds? At the same time, as the title suggests, there's controversy. He was a highly polarizing figure, so that's by way of introduction, and I'll let you pick it up where, wherever you want. That's JT. tremendous. I mean, you're absolutely on point. And this is, this is in, in, you know, for my money, arguably one of the most interesting stories in transportation from a singular individual in the past decade, if not two, if you want to define it that, because it really has been a large evolution. So maybe with that, um, why don't we kick off, uh, you know, what was the genesis for you actually putting pen to paper on this? Well, it's, you know, I knew Hunter probably... I got to know him, first of all, on television. For a long time, I hosted uh, the flagship interview program on Canada's business news network, kind of like Bloomberg Television or CNBC in Canada. And Hunter was at CN, Canadian National then, and I would interview him on their earnings and so forth. And I interviewed him. He was in Montreal. I was in Toronto. We kind of met on TV. And, and over that was 2004, 2005. He left CN at the end of 09. So we kind of got to know each other through that process. And uh, funnily enough, I kind of describe it as a collision. I'm, I'm a kid from Nova Scotia, and he was a kid from Memphis. 
we had very little in common personally in terms of our backgrounds, but, but we always got along. He, he, um, he respected my questions, and I think he had a deep need, like most of us, had a very deep need to be understood. And I asked, you know, on many occasions, challenging, tough questions, and, and he came to, I think, enjoy that. And uh, over time, we developed a relationship, and he left CN, as many of you know, at the end of 2009. What I did not know at the time was that it was a real boardroom battle, and he felt greatly betrayed by being um, uh, released from CN. And uh, he kind of cooled his heels, uh, if I can put it that way, for a couple of years at one of his horse, or a couple of his horse farms. Uh, but he was dying to work. And, uh, and in 2011, a guy named Bill Ackman big shot activist, shareholder, hedge fund guy from New York and his partner Paul Halal, who actually uncovered the opportunity, uh, coaxed Hunter back out of retirement. Didn't take much coaxing. The guy, <laughs> the guy was dying to work. He was kind of going crazy at, at home, the barn, and uh, his wife wanted him to go back to work, and he wasn't happy unless he was working. He needed that purpose. He had been a bad kid growing up in Memphis, actually. Uh, he, a self-described juvenile delinquent, father was a cop, came into conflict with his dad as a kid, got punched in the mouth by his dad, uh, hit in the head with a broom. Uh, later, they, they, they made, it up, made up um, uh, and, and, and reconciled, but it was a tough childhood, and he needed purpose. And it turns out we all need purpose, and he seemed to need purpose right until... Uh, the end, sadly, he died with his boots on, plugged into an oxygen machine running CSX, but he, he just was never content, never satisfied, wanted to keep working, and to the point about the genesis of the book, once he came back, once Ackman brought him back, Ackman and Halal brought him back to take on Canadian Pacific, which was the underperforming Class 1 railroad in North America, that was an enormous business story in Canada, front page news, because here were these... Um, uh, gunslingers from New York and Tennessee essentially taking on the Canadian establishment. It was a CP, Canadian Pacific, is one of the iconic companies in Canada. It was built to knit east to west in, uh, I think you mentioned the 1880s when mm -hmm. you were talking about uh, uh, the regulation of the industry. That's when CP was built. And uh, I hate to say it, but part of the reason was to keep Americans out. Because uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, Secretary of State, Seward, he wanted to annex Canada. And our Prime Minister, our first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, said, you know, I'm going to build a railroad from east to the west, and that's going to settle the west, and it'll keep Canada as a separate country. So CP is really woven into the, the, uh, the, the, the mythology of Canada. So the notion of Ackman and Harrison coming in and wanting to you know, unseat the board and unseat the CEO at Canadian Pacific back in 2012. It was a huge story. And I started to think then, wow, I'd written a book about a, a bank uh, called TD Bank, which is up and down the uh, East Coast of the U.S. TD Ameritrade is part of that empire. Uh, and so, you know, Hunter knew I'd written another book. Uh, Hunter is a pretty interesting story from soup to nuts you know, bad kid who becomes this four-time CEO, can't stop working, plugged into an oxygen machine, fights wherever he went, never backed down from a fight, um, kind of a rain man, a savant when it comes to railroads. I mean, it was an irresistible story, an embarrassment of riches, really, for an author. 
long answer to your question. That's an absolutely incredible answer. I, I'm not sure anybody could ever top an answer <laughs> like that for such a simple question. And, and, and you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning of your answer that here you have Hunter from Memphis going into being the CEO of CN, uh, which in and of itself not only is CP an iconic Canadian institution, yeah. CN was literally owned by the government for a period of time in Canada and is also a Canadian institution. So to have this iconic, large, physically and emotionally and spiritually, you know, figure from Memphis, Tennessee, who ran the IC, was a big part of the BN, yeah. come up to Canada was a big deal. Yeah, actually, I entitled Chapter 5, Memphis Meets Montreal. Uh, that was a big deal when he went to Montreal, when, when uh, Canadian National, CN, bought IC. You're right, CN was owned by the Canadian government for 76 years. It was cobbled together after the First World War, a bunch of bankrupt railroads, and of course railroads were necessary to the functioning of the economy, so they couldn't let them just wither and die, so they put them together, they called them Canadian National, and it was run as what we call a crown corporation, owned by the government for 76 years. They IPO'd it in 1995. It was the biggest IPO in Canadian history, and it was three years later that they bought IC, Illinois Central, which was headquartered here. Hunter's office was down the street at, uh, at uh, the NBC Tower, and it was around the time of NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, and CN, east to west, wanted a north-south route. Chicago to New Orleans gave it three coasts. And so uh, but when they brought Hunter to Montreal, he didn't even want to go to Montreal. He never thought about going to Montreal. But they said, it's a deal breaker. You're one of the assets. If we buy this company, you're coming too. And it was a bit of a culture clash, because uh, I mean, A, he didn't speak French, nor did he put much effort into speaking French. As his daughter says, he did one session of Rosetta Stone, and that was it. But he, you know, he, knocked, he, he, uh, he opened a meeting in Montreal uh, by saying, uh, a fantastic public speaker, by the way. Bonjour, y'all. That's what he said, and that was how, <laughs> how we got things going. But, but they put him in front of the top 200 people at CN uh, when they brought him to Montreal, and the guy sat there in front of 200 people and talked to them without notes for eight hours straight. People, as I wrote in the book, people were afraid to get up and go to the bathroom while this guy was speaking because, A, he could hold a room, and, B, in your list of adjectives there, he could be intimidating. Yeah. And he was intimidating for a lot of people, I think, because he was he's a big barrel-chested guy with a big deep voice, and he'd, he'd, he, you know, he, he had no filter, as I said you know, in the title, unfiltered. Hunter had no filter. He said what was on his mind. You know, he would never say no comment. He was just one of those kind of guys. He always was, had a comment, and he always wanted to think big, big and he always wanted to challenge institutions. That's right. And so he tested this concept of precision scheduled railroading at the IC. It was successful. And then he went in to do it on a larger scale at CN. What's interesting and what not a lot of people remember is the year after Hunter joined CN, CN attempted to buy the BNSF That's and create right. North American Railways. Yeah. Which That's was promptly blocked. Yeah. And there hasn't been another class one deal since then. But I mean, he has tried. He's tried. He tried. He did try. Uh, with, with CSX uh, when he was at CP, and he tried at Norfolk Southern, uh, and they kept up in the bid at Norfolk Southern, but it was hostile. You know, it wasn't going to work. They kind of blew it on the lobby, CP kind of blew it on the lobbying side in Washington. 
you know, Hunter was, was such a true believer, such a zealot, uh, and he thought, you know, this is a great idea. Why would anybody turn it down? Well, you know, you got to sort of grease the wheels in Washington, and he was not a guy who, who dealt well. This on the negative side of the ledger, he was lousy at government relations. Paul Tellier, who hired him at CN, he, he was basically the number two guy in the Canadian government, and he knew uh, prior to CN, and he knew how to, uh, uh, you know, lubricate the wheels uh, at the federal level, and he said Hunter was just absolutely awful at government relations. Mm -hmm. Awful was the word he used. Uh, that's in the book. But, but uh, they tried. They Poor tried. at public relations, great at investor relations. Fantastic. He learned the railroad game, and he played it to perfection. And he learned the financial markets game, and he played that to perfection. I mean, you bring a, you know, a hedge fund guy along for a ride. Every one of those deals that put Hunter in the CEO chair, and that includes Illinois Central here in Chicago, they were basically either hedge fund or private equity plays. Illinois Central was a private equity play. Mm -hmm. Illinois Central was a derelict railroad. It had a, an operating ratio, i.e. expenses over revenue, sort of the reverse of a, basically the profit margin. They, you know, it was break even. Uh, and, uh, you know, he brought that operating ratio down to, I think, 62. Pretty low. The tail fin on his plane was OR-59. With the help of Keith Creel, which I think is a really important caveat, that he always brought with him a really well-vetted team. Yeah, and I think that was you know, one of the things that is overlooked in the whole Hunter Harrison story. Everybody focuses on precision schedule railroading, or as it's known now, PSR. He never in his life called it PSR. I remember, you know, Paul Halal used that term, and I was with Hunter when he said, what in the shit is PSR? <laughs> uh, you know, I never called it PSR. <laughs> so, you know, he hated acronyms. But, but anyway, he, uh, aside from the precision railroading, he was an unbelievable coach and mentor, and he had an eye for talent and developing that talent. And if you had the slightest interest in learning, he would spend an inordinate amount of time with you as a lower level employee, as he did with Keith Creel, who now runs Canadian Pacific, yeah. um, uh, who had worked on Burlington Northern and the IC and so forth. And uh, you know, he brought these people along. He conducted so-called hunter camps at, at CN where they were kind of like revival meetings where they would, they would rent a beautiful hotel like the Breakers in Palm Beach and bring in all these mid-level railroaders, and Hunter would preach to them for hours on end at a retreat over the weekend, teach them how to railroad, but also teach them how to be a leader. And I remember you know, watching discs of these. It was amazing, really. What he was trying to do was tell them, just care. Just, just care. Just go that extra mile. Um, don't treat your people like worker bees, or that's what you'll get. So I think that he was fascinated uh, by the notion of leadership and motivating people as much as he was about making the trains run on time, which was essentially the, you know, and measuring everything, which was, uh, you know, those were the hallmarks of precision railroading. He, you know, many CEOs, and I've interviewed a lot of them, uh, are fascinated by political leaders, and they read biographies of people like Winston Churchill or Franklin Roosevelt or Napoleon. Hunter read the biographies of great sports coaches. You know, Bear Bryant, Vince Lombardi, 
tough but respected coaches. And that's how he kind of painted himself um, over the years. Yeah. So he, so, so with all of that in context, so he's sitting at the CN, does an incredible job managing their OR down to a very respectable industry standard level. Best in North America. Best in North America. Still one of the best best run railroads in North America to this day. Gets with Ackman, gets with Halal, takes over CP through a proxy battle, which was very contentious at the time. It was run by Fred Green. He actually hired a really well-known consulting firm to prove that the OR at CP couldn't change. (laughs) Which after the proxy- Hunter had a different view of that (laughs) consultant. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> Which Hunter then subsequently took the company over violently and proved him wrong. And then was at CP for, was it seven years? Four. So that, yeah, that's a very interesting point because uh, the CN turnaround, so it IPO'd in 95, Tellier had, had, you know, really done the first uh, turnaround there before they bought Illinois Central. And then Hunter brought the precision railroading concept, and that was the next turnaround at CN. But he was at CN for 10 years. He was at CP for four. And he was a lot older. He was 67 when he started to run CP. He didn't have as much time. It was a much more compressed time frame. But within, and they promised, Ackman and Harrison promised to get the operating ratio from, I think it was 81 and change, down to 65. Well, it's, I think it's sitting at 58, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. It's below 60. But they got it to 65. They promised four years. And they got it there in roughly two, I think. It was it's about half right? the time. Yeah. Uh, so the compression that occurred at CP was unbelievable. And then, of course, when he went to CSX later, and that's, uh, uh, he died nine months after that, it was a a heck of a lot more compressed. So he was getting older, he was getting sicker, and the time frames were shortening. So it was a, it was a, it was a race against time, really. And that set an interesting precedent because CP, yes, was a smaller network. Yes, they had less total gross revenue, so they're, you know, arguably it'd be, uh, you know, operationally speaking, could be quicker to downsize to prosperity, though they also opened up I want to say Port of Prince Rupert. Uh, as no, a, CN. CN did Prince Rupert. Or maybe it was Vancouver that, that yeah. CP opened up as an intermodal alternative to LA Long Beach. So there was a lot of issues on the West Coast. Right. And so they did both attempt to grow revenue while cutting you know, negative or, or dilutive OR uh, merchandising materials. And as such, he was able to create such confidence in both the operating community and the investor community that when he was ready to leave CP, by the time he opened up the notion of working with an Eastern Rail, whether it was to acquire one of them or to go take one over, investors immediately started pricing that into all their stocks and they're all public companies, which is pretty interesting. Oh yeah, well, uh, I mean, and you gotta remember that, uh, I mean, you used the word duopoly in in, in the intro. I mean, there are only, seven class ones, six and a half, I guess, you know, KCS is, is small, it's quite a bit smaller. Depends how you want to define Genesee and Wyoming. <laughs> I guess, yeah. It's getting up uh, to that, uh, that revenue mm-hmm. threshold, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, investors 
they caught on. I mean, when they saw Bill, what Bill Gates made on Canadian National, he is still, by the way, the biggest shareholder in Canadian National. There's a legal limit when they IPO'd it. Uh, they put a 15% ownership, uh, single ownership limit on it, and he's pretty close to that, I think, if not at that. But, uh, you know, so, so Bill Gates has, I don't know, a 12, 14, $15 billion stake in, in CN uh, still. I forget the exact number, but it's the biggest, the biggest share only. You know, you know, other investors saw that, and they saw what happened at CP with Ackman. Pershing Square, it was the biggest investment they, single investment they'd ever made. It was a 14% stake in the railroad of 1.4 billion, I think, at the time, and they took out 2.6 mm -hmm. over not even the four-year period mm -hmm. because um, uh, Bill and Paul left before, uh, before that, but, uh, uh, which was pretty staggering. And then, of course, when he went to CSX overnight, even before he went to CSX, just on the news that he might go to CSX, the stock went up 23% overnight, which was an $8 billion market cap jump, and then essentially a, a double. And then you see Norfolk Southern take, uh, say, hey, we're going to pursue precision scheduled railroading or some version of it, Union Pacific, and they hired a former COO from, from CN, Jim Venna, and the stock went up 9%. That was $9 billion on UP in one day when that happened, KCS. Um, it's just Burlington Northern that has not, uh, at this point, uh, Buffett's company that has not taken it, um, uh, taken on that philosophy. But he left the door open at the last Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. He did. He did. And yeah. So, so originally CP wanted to attempt to merge with an Eastern Rail. This is sort of where the notion of the the Transcon merger, uh, you know, resurfaced with uh, with Hunter at the helm. And while he was still the CEO of CP publicly recognized that a merger, uh, you know, as per the STB, the Surface Transportation Board, likely wasn't going to happen, but that he would be interested in perhaps taking over the helm at one of the Eastern Rails. And the original rumor was that he was going to take over Norfolk Southern. And Wick Mormon simultaneously found himself in a period of retirement and stepped out, and Jim Squires took over. And Jim was lesser known as a railroader and more known as a lawyer, um, although he did an incredible job with Norfolk Southern after having become the CEO, mm. sort of defended the helm uh, with the you know attempted activist takeover. Yeah, well, initially they went, they, they tried CSX. Hunter actually said to me, it didn't matter. We could take either of them, CSX or Norfolk Southern. Right. It doesn't matter. We can, you know, uh, we can uh, derive the same, you know, similar efficiencies from either of them. It doesn't matter which one. They tried CSX first because of valuation, mm -hmm. and that didn't go anywhere. And then the, the Norfolk Southern thing happened. And he actually, he said they had dinner in a restaurant in Chicago with the NS team uh, in a private dining room here in Chicago somewhere. And he was watching the body language of the NS team. And he had an incredible ability to size people up. Um, you know, he could, he could pick up the vibes and, and you know, to hit a nose for it. You could smell it. And he, he smelled dissension in the ranks at NS. And they thought, OK, we're going to go. We're going to give them a shot. Now, it didn't work out at, in Washington. Um, uh, but uh, they gave it a hell of a shot. And, uh, you know, I, I, I suspect that story's not over. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet and I don't have a crystal ball, but, um, you know, you can get, uh, efficiencies never go out of style. Right. 
even in, you know, people are saying, oh, well, is precision scheduled railroading going to work in a recession? We've got a different macro environment now. Well, I mean, uh, you, you know, you don't repeal the business cycle. The business cycle doesn't get repealed. It always, you know, economies always go through the cycle. But Hunter certainly believed that you could get a lot more efficiencies through some sort of major consolidation. He knew it wouldn't happen in his lifetime. He thought maybe it would happen in Keith Creel's, uh, mm -hmm. during Keith Creel's career. This is just a total blue sky guess on my part, but um, you know, uh, you have an election here in a year. Uh, if, if, if Mr. Trump gets reelected, I suspect that might be, and might is the word I would use, be another opportunity for the, the class ones to start, you know, yeah. to make a move. I don't know that they want to make a move before an election, but um, given all the political implications. But. That would be interesting. And, and it almost suffices it to say that his, his persona had become so large that simply announcing that he was considering taking over one of these rails moved the equity valuations in the public market so much that the shareholders, i.e. the executive management teams, were so heavily incentivized by the 30 to 40 to 50 percent move in stock prices that they almost couldn't say no. They couldn't say no. The board got boxed in. Correct. The board got boxed in at CP. Six members of the board resigned. Uh, you know, Oscar then, Munoz went up to United. Yeah, and, and, and at CSX, uh, you know, that, that happened. You know, they saw what happened at CP, that protracted battle, and it was an embarrassment for the board of CP. Uh, those the, the members of the Canadian establishment, the, 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 head of, the former head of Royal Bank of Canada, known here as RBC, uh, you know, you had... Uh, uh, the head of the big oil sands company, Suncor, Rick George, he's pa since passed away. Others, they, this was a blue chip board, and they were, it was a big embarrassment. So the board at CSX, you know, uh, okay, we'll meet with you. And, uh, oh, you're, you're on oxygen? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, let's see a doctor's letter. And, you know, there, there was hesitancy because of that. That was a pretty big thing to do, to hire a guy who was 72 years old with health issues uh, you know, so severe that he, he required supplemental oxygen. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often. But the stock, uh, you know, they were, they were stuck with the st where the stock moved. He created more share, count, um, share price accretion in one announcement than they had in three years. Yeah, and within, I think it was 47 days, he was CEO. Yeah. I mean, it was a very, very short uh, uh, window uh, between the first mention and him him getting the job. So with that and recognizing, sort of encapsulating everything we just said and the, and the power of the personality behind a man who can do something of, of such, you know, with our last 90 seconds here, I know you had the opportunity to spend, you know, a good amount of personal time yeah. with Hunter, which not a lot of people can say, certainly not in the railroading community. Um, give maybe a favorite story or a, a lasting thought, something personal perhaps, something, perhaps something about the, uh, the farm. There was a lot. There was a lot. I mean, I spent a lot of time with him, uh, close-up time. He was running CSX while in his, his pajamas and his house coat from his office at home. I was sitting on the couch listening to him, watching him do this. He's coughing like crazy. The oxygen tube's getting caught under the door of the office. A couple times I pulled it out of there, you know. Uh, you know, uh, he, uh, you know, I ate meals with the guy. Uh, you know, he wasn't supposed to drink. I saw him drink. You know, he, 
I said, don't tell Jeannie. It was the one, one of the people, I think he was most, it was his wife of 50 years, uh, doctor's orders, not supposed to drink, but he'd have a drink, uh, you know, a double Hennessy and then some key lime pie. He was a human being. And, and you know, everything became so curtailed in his life because of his health issues that, you know, okay, he broke some rules. But there were times when I was with him uh, and uh, Jeannie, his wife, I remember this happened twice, once in Florida and once in Connecticut where he had homes. Uh, she said, Howard, are you coming back to the house tonight to do more interviewing with Hunter? And I said, well, I can. I've always got more to ask him. Well, you know, that'd be great because... Uh, I want to go out and I don't want to leave him alone. I mean, in the last period of his life, she became essentially his, his round-the-clock caregiver. She knew what all the medications were. Uh, he refused her request to hire a 24-hour nurse. That was a, a, you know, a, a personal situation that I, you know, I was hearing her point of view, I was hearing his point of view. You know, it was so intimate, a writer caught between husband and wife on an issue like that. And, and then one night in Connecticut, we were having dinner. I stayed with them, and well, she went out. And uh, this is not in the book, but uh, all of a sudden over dinner, he, he started to seize up. And I thought he was having a heart attack or some sort of a seizure or something. And it was just us and the chef, believe it or not, at the pond in Connecticut, he had the chef stock it with catfish because he was from Tennessee and he loved catfish. So Christian, the chef, fried up some catfish and he had it in a, a bottle of Cabernet there and we're eating and, and, uh, and all of a sudden he, he seized up and I, geez, we're out in the country in Connecticut. What do I do? Where's 911? And, um, and then I, I, actually it passed, but he was a very sick man and I was with him 10 days before he died. Uh, in December of 2017 in Florida and in our last conversation which was very I mean the man the man who um, changed railroads in North America and uh, was so successful and so polarizing he cried in that in that conversation because he knew what he was facing and lo and behold ten days later he passed away that was our last conversation and he actually had to be uh, wheeled out of the breakers that day because it's such a big place and his, ox his lung capacity had so uh, declined that it was very difficult to see a human being uh, decline and deteriorate like that. And it's to my, just finish with this, it's to my everlasting regret that he never got a chance to read the book um, because uh, he died a week before I submitted the manuscript to the editor. And as I said in the uh, acknowledgments, I... Uh, you know, I wish they were around to read it because I know he would have argued with me about it. He was an argumentative guy, and uh, uh, I'm sorry you never got a chance to read it, but I hope you will, and I will be out there signing copies after this. Yeah. Please come get a, a signed copy of the book. Howard, thank you so much for not just, you know, talking here, but also your, your research, your time with Hunter, everything. So, Howard Green, everyone, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.